Today's scripture reading is from Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. I will be reading out of the New International Version. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as they had needed. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This morning I have a couple streams of thought that I hope don't throw you off, but that we'll be able to track together productively as we uh, share the word. The first is just a little uh, kind of story, I guess, anecdote about where we are sometimes in this spectrum of Christianity. This last Wednesday was what? How many of you know? Wow, bravo. I am very impressed. Now, I have to tell a story on our first elder. We were uh, laughing and sharing as we do Tuesday night at Cantori practice, and uh, we were talking about this thing, Ash Wednesday, and really it's not a part of our tradition, is it, Milton? I mean, we just don't connect to this notion at all. And Milton served for a time at a Catholic hospital and uh, had a, a wonderful nun he worked with on the board, and they happened to be in a meeting together on Ash Wednesday, and he turned to her and said, hey, you, you've got something on your forehead. <laughs> I guess she looked at him like he had three heads, something like that. Um, but these things that we're not familiar with sometimes are actually markers of things that can be significant in our lives. And Ash Wednesday was really the beginning of something known as Lent, which is 40 days. Now, I bring this up because of the, the sermon that I preached last week, which I don't know how many of you caught that, but there was a strong connection uh, between that sermon and the Lenten season with the 40 days and 40 nights because we talked about the 40 days and 40 nights that Moses experienced not once, and I didn't mention this last week, but a second time as well, um, the 40 days and 40 nights of Elijah and the 40 days and 40 nights of Christ in the wilderness. Now the idea is that in preparation for the celebration of the resurrection of Christ, Easter weekend, we choose as these great prophets did to deprive ourselves of something. We understand Christ to have been without, miraculously, obviously, food and water for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, um, maybe he wasn't without water that period, just food. I, you know, I'm not going to break this apart for you, but it's clear that he went into the wilderness to pray, was tempted, and as our child's children's story today referenced, there was this conflict that went on that drained him not only uh, physically, but drained him spiritually and emotionally. And at the end of this time, angels minister to him as they do to Elijah, and Moses is sustained as well. So it's just an interesting time in the, in the larger Christian church calendar that Adventists aren't always plugged into. And I don't know that I have a prescription for you in terms of what you want to give up. I joked one year that I was going to give up butter for 40 days and 40 nights. And I don't think it lasted... My wife says she's sitting here going, not possible. Um, you know, we talk about our bread and water. I talk about my butter and water. 
So, no, I, I really have uh, uh, taken a very moderate stance there, especially when you consider, you know, never mind, I won't bore you with all that. So that's one stream. One stream is, is where we left off last week with this notion of time in solitude and what that does or can do for us in terms of a communion and a connection with God and what comes out of deprivation in that time of solitude in terms of strengthening the spirit and deepening our connection to what it is that Christ did on our behalf and how it is that we follow him. So I just kind of wanted to give that as a a sort of uh, anecdote aside story today that we uh, we could hear and share. Another stream comes from uh, the stream that I've been walking through these past several weeks. And it's a stream that started in a story of pain. A family in Irwindale, I, many of you have heard me recap this story now several times, I'm, I apologize, but a man named Irvin and a wife named Anna and five young children who were shot in their beds a husband who killed a wife, a husband who shot himself, having lost jobs um, at the hospital my wife worked at, and for cause, and uh, losing all perspective and falling deeply into despair. And this stream is the stream in which we discuss the spiritual tools for survival in these times. Now, there is so much focus on the negative in these times. One of these sermons is actually going to be about the role of optimism and the role of a, a sort of faithful outlook as a tool for these times. But we've talked about the basis of our identity being in created being and being created image, uh, created beings in the image of God, first of all, being redeemed by that God, by being declared children of God in the genealogies in which we read the ancestry of Christ, and finally declared children of God again in First John chapter three, three to five, uh, in which that whole thing is laid out so beautifully. How great is the love the Father has for us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. So our de- identity, our, our very foundation is in God and that helps us hopefully not lose perspective as to our value or our place or the value or place of those around us as things get tough or things deteriorate. Secondarily, we looked at a passage in Psalm 23 in which I re- was reminded and reminded all of you that everything created belongs to God, the creator. So as created beings and redeemed beings, we don't belong to ourselves, first of all, but for purposes of the second sermon, my reminder was that nothing we have in this world belongs to us either. We're simply stewards of it. Naked we're born, naked we die. The old saying goes, You can't take it with you. Of course, the secular corollary of that is he who dies with the most toys wins. And sometimes I think that Christians live by that motto as much or more than by the naked I was born and naked I shall die motto. But stewardship requires us to take a perspective of non-ownership. Stewardship requires us 
to realize that we're imperfect and as such we need to increase our dependency upon God and his grace that we will make mistakes in stewarding the things God gives us but that God doesn't just want our assets he wants our liabilities so when times are tough when things go into the negative or into the red uh, God doesn't just want the pluses in your financial column he will take the deficits as well the third sermon was entitled the matter of trust and I took the story from Job and we looked at Job chapter 1 and 12 and 19 I think and looked at some of the more uh, well-known phrases that Job used including this one the Lord gives and the Lord has taken away may the name of the Lord be praised and finally last week uh, we did Solitude and Multitude, Family and Community, Part 1, looking at Matthew 10, and today is Part 2. So that's the, the mainstream that we've been flowing in. Now, last week, we talked about the 40 days and 40 nights in terms of the solitude versus the multitude. And I noted how very often Jesus used solitude as a tool for approaching multitude and for having the strength and the clarity and the vision and the purpose to be able to go and meet the masses and minister to them. But we find ourselves in different kinds of multitude, and a couple of them are very important. Solitude is one thing, but forms of community are another. And one of the things that's really, really vital in tough times, and I say this from profound experience, is first of all, family. And secondly, community. And some people say, what do those things mean? I pastored the Hollywood Seventh-day Adventist Church for very close to eight years. And it was before the full Hollywood revival had taken place. Human wrecks and refuse lined our driveway and sidewalk every day. People broken... Uh, beyond my capacity to understand. People uh, invisible in many cases to the society around. And what came up in the stories of those who were well enough and with it enough to ask for something or to give me a pitch. By the way, I think in eight years in Hollywood, I never did hear a true story. Uh, I don't think I ever heard one true story in eight years. Uh, having said that, in the pitch, inevitably, the question would come up, do you have family? The initial answer would always be no. And if I pushed sometimes there was just a wall erected, probably a false one, possibly a true one, but most likely a false one. This person might be only 30 or 40, but both parents are dead, the grandparents are dead, no brothers or sisters. You know, do the math, it's not extremely likely that that's always going to be the case. But more often than not, as the conversation continued, the story was one of alienation. And as time came, I began to realize more and more as I ministered in that area and listened to those people and did what I could for them, that there was a reason 
many cases, they were where they were. And one of the consistent reasons was the alienation of family. Now, I don't know about you, but I have had strains and stresses at times with my sisters. I don't know about you, but we all have probably someone in the family who seems to take more of the energy and more of the resources than any of the rest of us. And the funny thing is, some of those people may be you, but you think it's somebody else in your family. The fact of the matter is that most of us have a cousin, a brother, somebody who has experienced profound struggles with addiction and that it's brought tremendous strain to parts of your family. The reality is that there's always somebody who emerges in the case when a great aunt dies who was heir to the Union Railroad uh, fortune via partnership her husband had had who smashes the family through greed, sues everybody over the will, makes life miserable for the rest of you. There's always somebody who's done that. And so it's not hard to imagine that our families get splintered over time. It's not hard to imagine that there are hard feelings over money, over things that were done in childhood, over personality differences, over economic fortunes. Isn't it really tough, if you're honest with yourself, to look and say, you know, why is it that I'm making 10 grand a year and my sister is making a million a year? You know, how is that possible? I'm exaggerating, of course, for theatrical effect. And my sister, by the way, doesn't make a million a year, so I just wanted to be clear, this is not a personal story. (laughs) But you get the point? Are you with me? How many of you have family members that fit one or more of those descriptions somewhere? Only two of you. I guess I need to keep going. God calls us into reconciliation with himself. That is the core and key of gospel. It is not a reconciliation without accountability. And we need to be clear on that or we'll get in lots of trouble in terms of family systems and dynamics. I'm not going to give you here a naive gospel. There are pathologies that run sometimes in our families that are not reconcilable by us as human beings. We have to trust those to God. There are injuries so grave and so deep sometimes in families that reconciliation may have to wait until Christ himself brings a couple of people together. And that is so painful and so real and so unfortunate. But for most of us, the act of Christ reconciling himself to us becomes a model for us to reach out to our own families first in acts of forgiveness and reconciliation and accountability.
Because in tough times, people without people perish. That is a fact. It was really, I I don't want to tell too many stories, but it was tragic to meet 17-year-old girls at church from Kansas or wherever. And chances were good that they had uh, been molested. Chances were good that the family dynamic at home was incredibly uh, severe. Discipline was severe. Attitudes were very limiting. But they were going to come to L.A. and be somebody. And I begged them to get back on that bus or that train and get back home, wherever that would be. Because that boy they met that was now their boyfriend would, in a few months, become their pimp. And most of them would be dead within 10 years. And these are the harsh realities of people without family. And I don't tell this to you to leave you sick. I tell you this because we need, God has designed us social beings to live in community, yes, but to live in family. And as hard a work, there is no harder work, is there, than dealing with family sometimes. Be honest. Marriage, anybody? My wife will testify. Oh, come on, honey. I am occasionally difficult. It's been demonstrated more than once. Marriage is a crucible of its own. Raising children is the hardest job you'll ever love. That's what they say, and it's really true. I think Bill Cosby had it right. You know, sometimes you want to kill him, don't you? You want to say to him, I'll take you out and it doesn't matter to me, I'll make another one that looks just like you. (laughs) But when it comes right down to it, God loves us as his children and he calls us to love one another in the context of family. So enough about that. Let's move to the wider picture of community. The wider picture of community for us is multiple in this society. You have the community of coworkers that you share life with at work. You have the community of neighbors, hopefully, that you've befriended around your home, although this is America. Chances are good you've lived there 15 years and don't know two of them. Am I right? What a pity. It's, it's a sad commentary. And most of us find our main form of community to be the church but even that for some of us is sketchy or scary or a place where we don't really want to be known we want to slide in at 1102 and slide out as the pastor is wrapping up the prayer and hope that nobody ever learns our name some of us for some of us it's a place to use the gifts we've been given for some of us it's a place of inspiration and help and hope for some It's a journey. But this thing we call community is vital as a tool for surviving tough times. I'm going to propose a couple of things uh, before I get to my last stream. 
And one is that we turn to the text for today, Acts 2, 42 to 47. The context is Pentecost, post-resurrection. It's a text that we've read many, many, many times. Given history, it's a text we might struggle with. Given the current social and political context, depending on our viewpoints we might struggle with. But it's very, very clear that the spirit is strong in the community. And that people are doing the work that Christ had done. And that many were being committed to the way, as it was called, the new Christian church. And were becoming followers of this man who had been crucified and resurrected named Jesus. And there was emerging a leadership of confidence that came out of both solitude and multitude on the part of the disciples in those upper room experiences. And the apostles now, as they were known, were teaching and bringing people together and enacting the Lord's Supper again and again in even common meals. There was a lot going on. And there was what we would call a fundamental religious experience sense going on. And that is a real sense of presence, of wonder, of awe at what God was doing. And in this context of wonder and awe, the believers were together and were holding things in common Selling possessions and good, they gave to everyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It sounds like communism. Or it sounds like a utopia. Or something that doesn't work today. Right? You're not sure. See, I get it. I think I'm, it's a trick question, isn't it? Because if I say right, and you agree, well, yeah, I mean, practically speaking, that's probably true. But then what does that do to the word? Where does that leave us? A professor at PUC named Walter Specht said this once, political communism has said, what is yours is mine and I'll take it. True spiritual communion says, what is mine is yours, please have it. And that is a fundamental difference as we read Acts 2. Nobody was taking anything from anybody. There was no mandatory participation in this community. There was a sense of selflessness and a sense of openness and giving by which the Spirit of God could act and move. Now, it doesn't record this for us, but it's not too far a stretch to think that the Christ who fed a multitude with a 
couple of loaves and a few fish could not multiply those things that were offered as gifts and given in the context of community. Now, I'm not going to degenerate into making this a pitch for various funds and ministries and giving points here. But I think if we're going to be the body of Christ and if we're going to live in community, this needs to be a place where people are open, where the attitude as much as possible is not what you have, I'll take it, but what is mine is yours, I'll share it. And in that, we may avoid the harshest realities of street life, the harshest realities of hunger, and the harshest realities of going without. Which brings me to my final stream. Number three. And that is that I don't want to leave us there. I don't want to leave. We have a long way to go to get there, practically speaking, although we're underway. But I don't want to leave us there. There's an interesting fellow by the name of Shane Claiborne who's written a couple of books, and you would probably read him as an extreme liberal, and I suppose in some ways you would be right. And so I guess for a few, he's automatically off the book, off the record. No. But let me share this with you. He's founded a community in North Philadelphia in which they've taken a house in the urban context and have chosen to live in community, celibate community. And some do organic gardening, and there's only one car for more than 11 adults. And they make their own clothes, many of them. There is one lawyer who does not make his own clothes and who sort of lives outside of the scope of the community a little bit, but he funds the community because of what he does. He brings in huge amounts of money to help make things happen. They don't buy detailed insurance plans because when somebody gets sick, they nurse one another. When somebody's injured, they have somebody who has some kind of expertise. They do have catastrophic medical. They've created these communities, but the power isn't in the sort of socialism or communism or the way in which they've structured what they do. I think it makes a difference. But the power is in the critique. And I need you to hear this. I think it's important. Jesus, according to Niebuhr, could be seen through several different lenses. The Christ of culture, the Christ against culture, the Christ in culture, the Christ above culture. I, you know, he uses different prepositions, and I, there are five of them, and I don't remember all five of them right off the top of my head. And it's a fabulous book that he writes. A very powerful kind of thing. And this Christ who speaks critically to culture is the one that Claiborne voices. It is the Christ who looks at the structures that bring us to where we are. You see, it's fine for us as Christians to say, these are tough times, I hope I get through them, I'm going to 
do this or cut back a little or I hope I don't lose my job. Wow, too bad so many other people have lost their job. I mean, we've, it, it's got to go beyond sympathy. And it's got to go beyond a gift for the church or the shepherd's fund or one thing or another. The peace that we have, all of us have, that we can make a difference is in social reformation. It goes beyond the notion of sharing or any kind of socialistic or communistic or other sort of label you want to put on something. Or this giving Christian experience described in Acts chapter 2 in which great things are happening by the Spirit. It invokes in us the challenge to ask ourselves if we need to participate in this culture materially to the level and extent that we do. I'm guilty. I have a car that doesn't work. I don't take a bus. I buy a new car. I don't have one suit. I have three or four or I don't know, several anyway. I don't have one shirt. I have dozens. Maybe I don't need one. Maybe I really need seven. But do I need dozens? I have a house full of stuff. I've visited you. You have housefuls of stuff. Some of you have enough stuff that it's hard to walk through your houses. You never want to get rid of stuff. We participate many times in, this, in the values that our culture gives us, in the values that our culture shares. And I'll spend some more time on this later, but further in the series, but I do want us to think about what is the call of the Christian in terms of being the voice that goes against some of the values that have brought us to where we are? Are we part of a culture of indebtedness or have we been savers? Are we a part of the culture that consumes so much that when it comes time to give, we have nothing left for tithes and offerings? Are we part of a culture that's so skeptical about the nature of God, the power of God, the presence of God, the purpose of God in our lives that we don't take him at his word when he says, you are mine. Everything is mine. Trust in me. Because those things, those commands, those calls are that which will make us truly Christian. Those are the things that will come to define us as followers of the way. And so I'd invite you to think on those things. In what ways do we participate in the culture around us? In what ways is that good and appropriate and connecting? Because there are lots of those, by the way. Christ isn't just against culture. Christ is of culture sometimes. Christ is in culture. You see Christ at the wedding feast of Cana? Yes? Christ of culture, participating, supporting, being a part of, mixing, engaging. But he was also a Christ 
apart from culture sometimes. And we need to find the voice that challenges the injustice, that challenges the materialism, that challenges those things in our society that move to the heart of what got us where we are. It's a big work. It's a huge work. And you seem as sobered as I am by it. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Our gracious God, in solitude and multitude, in family and in community, may we lift you up and exemplify and glorify. We thank you. Amen.